Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelance and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Today, we've got a big episode because not only do we have my co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink, with me, but we also got a guy who everyone knows is BG. This individual reached a career high number four in the world and won 20 singles titles. He's also coached some of the very best players in the world, including my idol, Andre Agassi. Please welcome to the pod, Mr. Brad Gilbert. Brad, uh, good morning, and thanks for doing this with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Good morning, fellas, and uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, we, we have so much to get into, so if you don't mind, we're, we're going to take you back uh, about 27 years ago at what was then called the Lipton International, Kibis game. You were still playing. You were actually seated one spot higher than Andre. Uh, 24-year-old Andre or someone on his team invites you out for a dinner, I believe. Um, I guess I'll start with one. What was your rapport with Andre at the time? I know you had played a bunch of times. You played eight times. You're pretty good, right? It was four and four. You pasted him a couple of times. Um, you were Davis cup teammates. Did you have any clue that he was looking for a coach at that time? And two, uh, did you have any clue that they were even going to ask you for, for your thoughts on Andre's game? Well, first of all, um, it, you know, I was very friendly with Andre and he had just thumped me, uh, a few weeks before that in Scottsdale. And that was like, I believe his first tournament back after wrist surgery. And I, um, we were, I saw him on the practice courts at Miami right before the tournament was going to start. Um, and he said, what, what, what you up to tonight? I was like, nothing. You know, I, I was there by myself. And um, he says, let's get some dinner tonight. I said, sir, sounds great. And then he told me where to meet him. First, I was like, shoot, I'd never seen this before. I put my car on the ferry to go over to Fisher Island. So that was my first time ever going over on that little ferry, going to Fisher Island. And basically that night we were just shooting the shit, getting ready. I thought, you know, just having a fun night, getting ready for tomorrow's matches because we both played the next day. Um, I did not know he was looking for a coach, but you know, we just were having an honest discussion about his game and where he was going. And basically at the end of the night, because I was like looking at my watch thinking, I, I got to get ready. I got to play tomorrow. Um, and I was like, dude, I think I can really help you a lot, become a better player. Interesting. And that's the, I was it the next, was it like the next day or two you started hitting on the practice courts with him? So that was about 11 o'clock in the evening. And I said to Andre, I'll see you at 9 a.m. tomorrow for practice. And he was like, I never hit before 12 because he was playing like last in the day against, I think, Mark Petchy. And I was playing maybe 12 or 1 o'clock. And, and he says, no, no. And I said, dude, tw 9 a.m. tomorrow. And he rocked up at 9 a.m. the next morning and we started. Now that's the tournament. Um, that's the tournament. I think got to the finals with Pete and didn't he delay the final for an hour? Didn't it? Wasn't that the final where Pete had that stomach issue and Andre, you know, delayed the final for an hour. Um, so they were supposed to play a 12 AM final. I believe could it, you know, I'm getting old now. Remember, forget some noon final. It was, noon 12, final. it was either 12 or one o'clock final. And we had hit, you know, 1030 or something like that, come into the locker room and I see Pete like buckled over in the training room. And I'm thinking something's not right here. Um, 
And then the next thing, you know, I saw him getting an IV and I was telling, and I went over and told him, geez, you know, congratulations. Doesn't look like there's going to be a match today. You know? And he says, what do you mean? And he goes, well, I just heard Pete is sick and doesn't look like he's going to play. And Andre says, well, it's not the way that this day is supposed to go. And there's a lot of people come. And Andre amazingly said to the tournament, however long Pete needs to get ready to be able to play so we can have a match today is when we'll play. And so they, Pete, you know, needed like five, six hours and they ended up playing the match I think five, six o'clock and Andre ended up losing in three sets. And it was like, man, that IV, whatever he got worked. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, you know, we'll, we'll get into a couple things with Pete. And again, Steve's latest book, Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. All tennis fans should go back. And, 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 and I'll tell you one thing too, you, you know, the last few weeks. Brad, if you don't mind leaning back a little bit. Yeah, so so like fast forward, you know, from, from that match. <clears throat> So the last few weeks on, on Bally's TV, which is like, you know, Bally's is like the little logo now that's on like a lot of the old Fox uh, West and all of the Fox regional TVs. And they show a lot of tennis now on TV. And they've been showing a lot over the last three weeks. And literally I had never seen the match. The 95 final, Andre versus Pete, and they show it like in a condensed version of an hour. I think I've watched the thing like four times now. And I had never even seen that match since they played that match a year later, um, which Andre won tiebreaker in the third to become yep. number one in the world. Yeah, it's crazy, crazy. Um, I mean, it, pairing you guys up seems, at least from the outside looking in, seemed like such a natural fit. I mean, Andre had all the talent in the world, wasn't really utilizing it to the best of his ability, where in your case, you may not have had as much natural talent as Andre did, but you absolutely maximize every part of your game. I'll ask Steve too, just looking at it um, from Steve, your expertise and knowledge. I mean, this was a match made in heaven. It was, I mean, I'd be curious to get Brad's thoughts. It seemed to me that when Brad, that when Andre was working with Balateri, it was, it was more about taking the ball early. It was hitting it as hard as he could I didn't feel that Nick was really necessarily that focused on strategy while you, when you came along and then that's no, not because I think Nick was a great coach and he did a terrific job with him. But that when you came along, it was more of a cerebral approach, you know, to get him to think about the game differently than he ever had before. How would you describe that evolution? Um, you know, one thing about coaching, you never know if anything's going to work. There's no given just because, you know, the way I play, the way he plays, sometimes people think, oh, this guy didn't play anything like him. How's he going to be able to coach him? It's much more about, at least for me, when I started coaching Andre, I was playing and anybody I've coached, it's only about what we're doing today and what we're doing tomorrow moving forward. It's not about what anybody's done before. And each player that you coach, I call it, it's like a blank, you know, piece of canvas. And now it's what we can work on to get better. And, and I felt like Andre maybe wasn't maximizing some of the strengths that he was able to do. And, and I felt like the, the one thing I told him that if you're at 95% physically, 
where you can be, but only 50% mentally, you can lose a lot of matches. But if you're at 50% physically and 95% mentally, you can win a heck of a lot of matches. And I, I, I felt like Andre was trying to be too good and, and try to be, you know, blow through everybody. And I said, with your game, if you play hard to big corners and just play steadier, there's very few people that can beat you. And you're just trying to, you know, be too perfect. And there's no reason in, in tennis when you're just playing one guy, you're not playing the whole field. You just have to be four to six points better. So I think I got him thinking a lot more about strategy, about, you know, his strengths, his opponent's weaknesses. I, uh, I was a little surprised when we started that he wasn't really that focused on his opponent's strengths and weaknesses. So we really made a big emphasis on that side of the court and what he could do with his side of the court to maximize his game. Yeah. That's and did, did he convey to you that he, th I mean, how much did he tell you about how he had approached it previously and, and, and how quickly was he ready to respond to your message? Cause I think you're backing up my point. You really were getting him to think about the game differently than he ever had before. Well, I think the first thing, Steve, that really surprised me most about Andre was he had a photographic memory. I, I remember going out and telling him the, the next night, I started talking about a point like at 4-3 in the third set against Pecci. And I couldn't believe that that first match, I had got a win. I'm going over watching this guy, Andre, play Pecci. And the next thing you know, he's in a dogfight. And... I told him about the point where you could have taken a forehand and come in. And like a radio play-by-play -play guy, it was like a 17-ball rally. He could recite the point, <laughs> each shot. And every single point, he had total recall of every point. And I was like, oh, shit. I, I can't just flippantly say, you know, <laughs> it's like not only does he remember the point, he remembers the rally of the point. So I felt like that was a huge positive and bonus right there that how much knowledge that he actually had in memory of what he just done. And I felt like he was very receptive to getting better because I, I, I just felt like at that point, he was too worried about beating guys 6-2-6-1. Everything was about crushing guys. And that was his mentality. That was his dad's mentality. If he won seven, five, six, four, he felt like crap because it could always be better. And I told him is when you win, you move on. You give yourself an opportunity to play tomorrow or who knows, play at the end of the week to get a lot better. So that, that was what I started working on right away. It's just about once the match is over, we focus on the next opponent, not being so disappointed in the score line. Yeah, no, that's, that's great, Brad. And I, I mean, the, the relationship, the coaching relationship, so it was an awesome eight years. Um, Andre wins six of his eight slams with you, uh, plus an Olympic gold in Atlanta in 96. He also had that amazing run. Not sure it's talked about as much because it's overlapping in years, but he won 27 of 28 slam matches, starting with the 1999 French open, ending with the 2000 Australian open. He did lose the 1999 Wimbledon final to Pete. And if any of you Pete Sampras fans, 
Go on Google and check out what Pete did at 3-3 in the first set, Love 40, because Pete had... Why you got to remind me of that 3 all <laughs> I will never... We're going to avoid the pain points, Brad, but we got uh, to throw it in there a little bit. Um, Pete had game. an uncanny ability. <laughs> that seven-minute stretch of Pete from 3 all Love 40 to... Uh, he had hold, break, hold, break. I mean, completely changed the match and hit a couple of second serve bombs. I still have nightmares about that match, but that was an amazing 28 match streak of Andre in, in that slam. But I will never forget, unfortunately, that 99 rule. That's still yeah. like, you know, what's funny is as you get older, you actually, I used to never forget matches. Now I actually totally forget matches. You gotta go to the ATP website to remember them. But I think as you get older, it's a strange thing. You remember losses more vividly, more clear, especially from my coaching. I can't remember any of my matches anymore from playing, but I can remember losses. So for some reason, you know, those losses, and especially that one stick out. A couple, you know, listen, I, if I could have some mulligans, the 95 U.S. Open final and Probably maybe the, the most disappointing match ever was the 90, uh, 2001 quarterfinal match for breakers um, at the Open against Pete as well, because I felt like Andre was going to win the Open that year. So, yeah, definitely have some early gray hairs and nightmares thinking about some of those Pete matches. Well, you, you kind of were going where I was next. I did want to also mention before we before we get to a couple of those matches with Pete, um, you know, Andre was number one. He fell all the way down to 141 and then back to number one, all with you there. I mean, you've, you've, you've experienced it at all with Andre. And it was a unbelievable, you know, just as a fan to, to watch it all evolve, going from the highs to the lows to the highs was, uh, was pretty spectacular. And I mean, you guys have such a special relationship even, even to this day. Um, there's no doubt that you know, a lot of times guys at, you know, Andre's level, Pete's level, most of their, their, if you look at their ranking and their arc is always, you know, right near the top. Andre obviously went all the way up, all the way down, back up. I mean, and he had a couple, you know, I, I think the 95 U.S. Open, you know, was it was a harder loss than it actually seemed at the moment, you know, because I think that kind of, uh, started a little bit of a tailspin in 96 that, that obviously hit a crescendo in 97. And then, you know, the crash at the end of 97 created the, the upward. But you know what? From a coaching perspective, you know, Andre had this amazing God-given talent. And it it's easy sometimes when you have a player that has amazing talent, it can make the coach look great. You know, I feel like I could make anybody a better player, but you can only be as good of a coach as the player's talent will allow you to take him to another level. We just had some unbelievable ups and downs, but I enjoyed, you know, the entire gravitas of the eight years from the ups to the downs, to the backups and, Andre is just an amazing person to begin with. And I, I think that's probably the most special part of the eight year relationship is just what a quality human being Andre is. So Brad, you were, talk, you were talking, Brad, about the, how hard it is to let go of, uh, you know, you, you, you remember the, so vividly those, those painful losses. Is, was it, is it similar when you look at, uh, especially Roddick more than Murray, but you know, you, you, 
you look back on, on, on anything in that period in 03 and 04, obviously things went beautifully in 03, but any, does that 04 Wimbledon final bug you in a way as similar to a couple of the matches Andre played against Pete? Uh, uh, yeah, that's even, you know, that's even, you know, sooner. That, that's 2000. I will never forget. So if I could get some Mulligan matches back, you, you know, I told you that the 95 U.S. Open was a crush. The, the 2001 U.S. Open was a crusher. The 99 one, he, he got rolled. So, but the 2004 Wimbledon final is, is right up there with those two matches because I felt like Roddick was playing great ball. And that match had a lot of momentum swings and, and obviously they had played um, 03 semi. And I, I felt like in 03, the tournament was absolutely wide open. It was Roddick versus Fed, Grosjean versus Philippouses. I believe it was all four guys, first time ever, semis at Wimbledon. We we're going to have a new finalist, new winner. So I was actually kind of thinking, you know what? there's a really good chance that he's going to win it right now. And then fast forward a year later, you know, he wins that first set, uh, was down 4-0 in the second set, you know, got back to 5-all. Uh, we had two different rain delays, um, was up a break in the third, 4-2, another rain delay. And then after that second rain delay, you know, Fed came out, started to serve him volley a little bit, got one huge let court, I believe at five all, and just was able to squeak a couple of points here and there. And I felt like that match was right there. And I, I, I felt like that match maybe was the impetus for Fed to really elevate his game because now that's the first time that he defended a slam title. And, I, and then he eventually won three slams that year. And I just feel like that match really took him to another level. But I felt like that day, that match, you know, before the match, I felt like Andy had a good chance to win. As I watched it unfold, it's like one of those matches. Sometimes you still can't believe that he lost that match because I felt like Andy was, you know, at the same level at that moment as Fed. Interesting. I want to go back and we'll get back to something with Andy that I want to talk about, but I want to go back to one thing because Steve and I talked about um, a lot of stuff with Pete and Andre, but to go back to that 2001 quarterfinal match, the U S open, the four tiebreakers. And we all remember that standing ovation before the four set tiebreaker. And Brad, I want to ask you if you could have seen this at a, from a broader perspective, because Steve made a really good point about that standing ovation. And Steve, I'll, I'll ask you to describe it. Um, what you felt when everyone was given that standing O before that four set tiebreaker. Yeah. Brad, t it, tell me if you agree with this, but I felt like they, 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 it was, first of all, it was a perfect evening. I've never seen that stadium. So lacking in wind in those days, it was like a wind tunnel so often in those days before the roof. And here it was perfect conditions. They play this incredible match. They're about to play the four set tiebreak and the fans obviously realized that, it could end there. I mean, they might get a fifth, but it might be over. So they go into the standing ovation 
And I really felt like it wasn't just about that night. They, they didn't know how many more times they were going to see these guys. As it turned out, they played the final the next year, but they really couldn't know at that point. To me, it was almost a salute, not only for that uh, gem of a performance both of them were giving that evening, but for their the breadth and scope of their entire careers. How did, how did you feel about it, looking back? You know, that's probably well said, Steve. Um, you know, the coach in me, you know, I was so locked in you know, to the match. I was so frustrated, you know, inside that we were in a four set breaker. Andre had so many chances to break opportunities, but yet that was the ultimate in Pete that somehow he just has this ability to be able to take care of his serve and, and be able to frustrate opponents. And it was an appreciation, but in the moment, the coach in me, you know, I just, you know, I'm so frustrated, you know, because I'm, 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 I'm willing Andre to, to win this fourth set and get into a fifth set. And I did have a little bit of a flashback, a good flashback in 2000. Andre was down two sets to one in the Aussie Open semi Dummy. late at night. And he wins a four-set breaker and then rolls Pete in the fifth. So instantly I just, you know, flipped back to like 19 months ago and it was like, here we go. Andre's going to pull this, you know, four-set breaker out and he's going to roll in the fifth because I feel like he's the fitter of the two. But Pete raced out to a quick lead in that breaker and then ended up, I believe, winning that breaker 7-5. Andre lost yeah. Um, yeah. on his serve at 5-6. Um, but that was that was one of those matches, I tell you, that I probably couldn't sleep for six or seven hours. And maybe I was gutted for a week. You know, it's just one of those matches that I just it, it was hard to, to get over. You know, it was just because I felt I, I felt for Andre, obviously. Uh, but, it, you know, as amazing as Andre, you know, could be so gracious and, and then he wouldn't you know, take them as hard, actually, probably as I, I took some of the losses. And then, but he knew right away that he had been in an epic encounter. And I didn't know right away because of, you know, I was still, you know, in the heat of the moment, you know, uh, about the match. It was probably a little bit like McEnroe Borg of 80. It was like, if you were there, maybe that that's one of those matches that you'll never forget. And that's the greatness of tennis and sports. Well, you know, Brad, I saw all of their, I saw an awful lot of their, uh, their 34 matches they played against each other and all the big ones. I wasn't in Australia, but I saw all their U S open matches and they played four times there, three finals and the Wimbledon final and all the rest. To me that night, it was a quarterfinal. And we think of all the major finals they played. That quarterfinal was the best match they ever played against each other from both sides of the net. Can you look at it that way now? Are you able, after, uh, with the passage of time, to me, the quality was so astounding. And, they, and no service breaks in four sets for either one of them. I mean, you talk about Pete clinging on to his serve, but Andre didn't lose his serve. So to me, it was really, the, the, the level of play was just, absolutely amazing and i look back and, and feel like that was the best match they ever played against each other both sides of the net what's your feeling yeah, on that um the, that was right up there i felt like actually the the three maybe the three highest quality matches that they played was the miami 95 
the U.S. Open uh, 2001 and maybe the first four sets of the 2000 semifinal because they had matches where they both played one played a little better. Right, you know, right. One, but, right. but those obviously and the closeness of them and and a lot of times, too, it has to do with the crowd. Like the energy in Miami was amazing. The energy that night at the Open was amazing. Um, so a lot of that, and I also think in, in Australia, the, the, the crowd energy was amazing. And they, they play a huge part in it. And I also think, you know, a great part of a rivalry is so many people gravitas, you know, and, you know, rooted for Andre. They rooted for Pete. They had, or they disliked Andre. They disliked Pete. So it's a little bit like the big three rivalry now. Um, so it, it had that element. But I, I think those matches stand out on the highest of quality. And you, you felt from the 2001, you, you sent something six, seven games in. Wow, both guys are sharp. I wonder what's going to give tonight. And, and I, you, you felt like there was never a dip in the match. There wasn't like one bad period that there were, Jesus, you know, in a match like that, you expect a flat period after a breaker, the next set, after the third set, you, you know, there was no dip and you felt the tension the entire, I just wish I could go back and change the result. <laughs> I'm still so annoyed cool. by that. Hey, I want to I want to ask you something that it, it, I mean it happens not just with you it happens with other coaches it doesn't happen all the time but when you when you coached Andy um, <laughs> Andy played Andre and one of those matches was a classic match in Cincy Andre wins seven six in the third I believe um, what's that like coaching against a, a guy you I mean you have an unbelievable relationship to this day. How, how like odd was that? How did you prepare for that? Um, just the mentality of it. I'm just intrigued on how that all worked out. Yeah, it's a good question. Actually, the first tournament that I started with Andy Roddick was uh, 2003 Queens. And I flew over and Andre hardly ever played Queens. And we, we had played Queens, I believe, in 2000. It might have been the only time Andre played Queens before that. And he had a bad slip against Gianluca Ponzi, and he ended up pulling out of the match. And, and he told me, he goes, I'm never playing this tournament again. The, and he goes, by the way, the courts are too good. So three years later, I'm coaching Andy Roddick, and Andre's playing Queens uh, again. And then I see Andre on the practice courts. Um, I had told, I had phoned Andre a couple days before and said, I'm on my way to Queens. I'm going to start coaching um, Roddick. And he said, cool. But I didn't even know he was playing there. So they end up playing in the semis. And when I started that tournament with Andy, in the first practice, Roddick told me, he goes, you know, basically this is just, uh, a practice couple of weeks. I don't win any matches on grass. You'll see the better of me, you know, once we get to hard goals. And I'm like, you got a huge serve, huge forehand. You'll be fine on grass. He goes, no, I don't ever win matches on grass. So he ends up getting to the semis and playing um, Andre. And it, it's a weird feeling that all of a sudden 
you know, you have to forget that you coach the other guy. You're coaching this guy. You have to think about, you, you know, your opponent's weaknesses and strengths and the same thing about what your player needs to do. And so that, that, you know, even though I loved Andre and still had a great relationship, sometimes you break up with the player and you don't have a great relationship. And then it becomes a little more about wanting to beat your old player. And that's actually, you know, a recipe sometimes for a coach for disaster when you're making it personal. Um, And it's got to be much more about the two people that are playing and the execution of that. And as it turned out, that match came down to the wire. Andre broke Roddick at five all in the third. And I was thinking, oh, shit, you know, Andre's going to tough him out. Roddick broke him back. And then I think he beat him either eight, six or nine, that's seven. It. That's it, Brad. Eight, six. You got it. You got yeah, it. See, see, I'm getting old. I, you know, <laughs> I, I've got the results in front of me. So saved that, he, he saved a match point, uh, Roddick. Yeah, he saved a match point, toughed him out, eight, six breaker in the third. And then, then they play in Cincy in 2004. And, and let me tell you, that was, I got to think, that was an even higher level match than the Andre Pete match. The Andre Roddick semifinal 2004 Cincy. Mm. The same kind of thing. I think it was 5 7. Seven six seven six. I don't think that. Um, so the only break of the match came at the end of the first set. So no breaks. It was three hours of same kind of that same tension that you felt in the Andre Pete match. The crowd was absolutely rocking, <laughs> and you know it was just a pleasure to be able to sit there in the coaching box and watch this match of such a high level and you know Andre toughed out um Roddick in that match but the same thing I, I feel like I tried to remove myself from that I used to coach Andre it's a hard thing to do and I coached Murray and coached against Roddick it's it, it it's a it's a unique situation to be in but the most important thing is that you can't convey to your player in any way, shape, or form that this is a grudge match, you know, for me, because I used to coach this person. It's always about the players and what their execution needs to be in that match. And that, that's how you uh, try to keep it simple. But obviously, your player knows that you used to coach this player and, you know, it, it happens. That's great insight. No, I, I wanted to ask that question. That's great insight. I appreciate that. Um, you, you, Andy Murray, I mean, you had three different personalities with Andre, Andy Roddick, and Andy Murray. Um, you know, like you said, and I think all good coaches, sometimes they get in trouble where, okay, something worked for my past player. We're going to automatically apply that to the next player. And if it doesn't work with that next player, well, that's on the next player. That's the next player's fault. And that's not true. I mean, a good coach needs to see what they're working with and what works for that specific player. Um, obviously, you have that gift. You worked with three those three different guys. Um, did you ever kind of, when, when you approached a new relationship, like with Andy Murray, did you say, okay, this worked with Andre. Let's try to see if it worked with Andy. Or this worked with Andy Roddick. Let's try to see if it worked with Andy Murray. Or like you said, 
blank canvas and let's see what let's see how this works. Well, I, I knew how I was as a player. I started coaching Andre and Andre had, you know, some of the same traits that I had. And especially Andre could talk for long periods of time the night before about tactics. So I just was it's the same way I was. And I was assuming a lot of people were like that. When I started coaching Andy Ronick, I quickly realized that he's a little bit like Mission Impossible. This message will implode in 10 seconds. You had to get in, get out. And you can't make somebody be different. With Andy Murray, he could talk forever, but he always, no matter what, like when I would give the strategy, he'd always say why. His big thing is, and how did you come to that? And then like, he almost questioned you because of his severe knowledge and thought about everything. And that, that's the key to coaching, no matter who you're playing. You know, if you try to make them how you are, it, listen, some people have success. Some coaches are only gonna coach a certain way, no matter what player they are. And some football players, uh, you know, coaches, uh, a coach will only coach one way. And he has a new team and he will make that team adopt his coaching philosophy. But what happens if he doesn't have the skill set? That's why you crash and burn. And what happens as a coach? If I try to do some of the things with Roddick or Murray that Andre did, I wouldn't be successful with those players. And that's why I say each player is different. You know, Obviously, that every player that you go, geez, I wish I could have Roddick hit a backhand the way Andre did, or he could do this. I wish that Andre could hit a serve the way Roddick did. I wish that, you know, it doesn't work that way. So each player, you have to focus on what their strengths, you know, individualities are, what their weaknesses are, and how that you can make them a better player. Because that's always the goal as a coach is how you're going to make your player maximize their game. Um, and I, I feel like that if a coach is trying to make the player adapt to the coaching philosophy, thumbs down. Thumbs you're, down. You're, you're, you're <laughs> not going to get the, the maximum yeah. out of your player. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I, I want to go into uh, some of the coaches today. I know – you know, Felix has Tony, uh, you know, Uncle Tony working with him right now. You were high. I remember I've been on Twitter for a while. As long as you, you were high on Felix when Felix was like 14 years old. Um, you knew he was going to be a star. You got Jensen. We're all real high on Jensen Brooksby, his coach, Joe Gilbert, um, relatively close to you. Not, not, not real close, but whatever. We'll say same state. Um, <laughs> what are your, uh, what's your take on some of the, the current coaches, some of the current really good coaches in today's game? Um, well, I, I, I guess, you know, let, let's start with Uncle Tony. I mean, amazing run. And then had been working at the academy. And, and now he, you know, he's helping Felix and seeing if he can help him make a push to another level. I think it's exciting to see a guy with that much knowledge that much energy to, to want to come back. You, you know what? He's older than me. So all of a sudden now I'm starting to think, you know, it's been a long time since, I, you know, I've been back in that situation. So he's got me thinking, you know, if the right situation comes up, uh, you know, I'm actually starting to think about, you know what, maybe I'll give it a go again. Cause ah, you know, I, I miss <laughs> coaching. Um, 
Joe Gilbert has been coaching Jensen Brooksby since he's been seven years old. Um, and the first time I really paid attention to, to Brooksby is when he won Kalamazoo. And I was thinking, man, this, this guy is, is a player. And then I watched him play at the Open um, that year and then seen him play a lot now. Um, kind of reminds me of a little bit of a relationship like Usney with his coach, Boris, started with him at a young age. Quertin's coach started with him at a really young age. So I do think there's a possibility with Coach Joe Gilbert that he will take him from seven to being a Grand Slam champion. And I think that from what I'm seeing now in a short period of time from Brooksby, I, he's got a little bit of like Medvedev, a little bit of Murray, a little bit of Florian Meyer in his game. And I, I think that him and uh, Korda are our best hope to winning a slam since Andy Roddick. But I'm extremely hopeful of those two guys. Um, and seeing, seeing Uncle Tony at the Open this year, you know, like I said, I think he's a year or two older than me, got me excited that, you know what, maybe I, I need to get back. Brad, how surprised are you, though, by the way? I mean, Uncle Tony did a great job with Felix in quarters of Wimbledon. He beats there if he gets to the semis of the Open and probably should have won the second set against Medvedev. But, he, you know, he had a great couple of majors there and a good year all around. Are you surprised that Uncle Tony has adapted that well to working with another player because he was so catered to Rafa for so long? Well, he had been probably working uh, with other players at the academy. Christian yeah. Root had been there a lot. Um, uh, there, there's a couple, quite a few other pros have been there. And Felix had been there at a training block a couple of times before. So maybe he had the knowledge of being on the court, you know, working with some of these people. And, and it just shows you the fire still burns, you know, for the coach. And maybe a little bit of like, can I coach outside of Rafa? So, um, and I'm sure that since Rafa is still on the tour, he probably asked, you know, Rafa if it was okay, because he is the, the head coach and, you know, working at the academy, can I jump back out on the tour, you know, with Felix? And I'm sure if Rafa said that was okay, he, you know, was ready to make the move. Um, also feel like, okay, it's not like he was starting with a guy ranked, you know, 150. He wasn't. It was a little bit me starting like with Raddick. You know, the guy had talent to all of a sudden be able to lift him. So I think that now he's probably, you know, thinking about, okay, where are we going to make some incremental jumps in our game to, to get to that another level? I, I, I think the only thing missing now probably from Felix is to win some tournaments. You know, he's 0-8 in his career in ATP finals. And I believe in the 0-8, he's 0-16 yeah. sets. He yeah. hasn't even won a set. So I do think that that will be a big thing for him in 2022 is win a couple of titles, a 250, a 500. So the next time that he gets in the business end of a slam, that he's kind of like been past that situation. It's, it's really difficult to win your first tournament as a slam. Right. How do you, feel, how do you feel about Give us some, your, some quick thoughts on some of the other coaches too. Like uh, how much of a contribution did Goran make versus Vida when it came to Djokovic's year as an example? 
Well, Vite has, you know, done an amazing job. He's been with Joker since 2006. When I started with Murray in 2006, Vita started with um, Djokovic. And I remember asking Andy Murray about a bunch of guys that were his age, all the French guys, Monfils, Gasquet, Songa, and numerous guys that were his age. And then when I asked him about Djokovic, he was like, listen, whatever I need to be able to do in this game, that's the guy that I need to be most mindful of because he's a great player and he's going to be doing great things. And so, so immediately that made me pay attention, a closer attention to Novak because of how high that Andy felt his level was going to be. So I think Vine has done an amazing job. And, and what also Marion's done is been able to adapt to some other guys that they've brought in. You know, they brought in Boris Becker. They brought in Andre. They brought in Gorn. And so they've been able to work together. Um, and so that's a, a great quality. Um, and I think that what Gorn has brought to the table the last few years, obviously, you know, the knowledge of coaching against him and the kind of the thought process that he can bring um, with his thoughts and helping Novak uh, become a better player. I think he's definitely had the, the, the two biggest influences that he's had in a, uh, in a short period of time is beefing up his serve, making the serve more of an emphasis on winning free points and his transition game moving forward. And obviously he's been able to work great with his main coach in Vita. And, and that's a, you know, a great quality that Vita has got. And I, I think that he's Hall of Fame worthy. Yeah, um, we're all on board with that too. And I, and I know we're, we're running a little bit long here. We're appreciative of your no, time. No problem. And, and I know Steve, it's like such a, you know, Hall of Famer and it's like coaches are way underlooked. I also think that Williams, sister's parents should probably be put in the hall of fame for coaching because of very underlooked, you know, and I, and I, I think, and the same for uncle Tony, he's all of fame worthy. And I hate the fact that coaches have to go in as a contributor, no other, like in the hall of fame in basketball, football, baseball, coaches go in with players. I think it's an absolute joke that coaches don't go in this highest of quality coaches don't go in as a, a, a Hall of Famer, not a contributor. Well, but contributors are Hall of Famers, so they're, I don't think they're being But down. It, it shouldn't even, Steve, it shouldn't even be that word. Yeah, okay. I, I, I would like to see that. I understand for, you know, if you were a promoter or you were media, you were something, and it, it's a great honor. And if they want to say you're a contributor, they have that in the NFL. But to me, did, did, you know, Harry Hopman is maybe the only one that isn't a contributor, you know, and Boletari was this legendary coach. He went in as a contributor. I feel like as a coach, there should be no contributor as your name going into the Hall of Fame. That's just my two cents. How do you feel about your yourself, Brad? I mean, it's a, a, not to put you on the spot, but you've had you've had some immense successes in, in, as a coach through the years, not to mention your playing credentials. Um, 
listen, there's a lot of coaches, you know, Darren, uh, Tony Roach is in as a player, obviously a great coach, Paul Anico. There's, there's quite a few coaches. So I do believe at some point they're like, like this year, there's zero coaches on the hall of fame nominees. And there could easily be one or two coaches worthy of being on the list this year. So I do think, listen, uh, I'm worthy, just like some of these other names that I just mentioned, that should be on. Marion Vita, you know, the, the Williams sisters' parents. Um, Uncle Tony. These are people that are worthy. And I'll just leave it at that. Hey, I, I want to, I want to, go ahead, Steve. Sorry, David, just briefly, because we didn't touch on it. And, and David and I spoke about this in advance of the show. But, you know, obviously you wrote the famous book, Winning Ugly. And you are always very self-deprecating about your own tennis. I just want you to briefly discuss. I want to take a contrary view as someone who watched you a lot in the 80s and 90s, particularly the late 80s. And saw you have that great summer of 89, you know, with that string of, of tournaments, hardcore tournaments culminating with winning Cincinnati, where you beat uh, you beat Sampras, Chang, Becker, Edberg, back to back to back to back. I felt, Brad, that that that, that was self-deprecating, that you actually were a lot of fun to watch. You had a very good, smooth service motion, beautiful one-handed backhand. You were crafty. I didn't think there was anything that ugly about your game. So can tell me I'm wrong. Um. You know what? I actually, to, to my own mind, Steve, I didn't think I played ugly. I just thought I competed my ass off. And if anything, sometimes being self-deprecating takes a little pressure off yourself. Um, and if anything, I wanted and hoped to, to do better. I never like put more pressure on myself that I had to be this or I had to be that but you always feel like you can be better or do better. And that drives you. And the whole thing about winning ugly with Steve Jamison, he was the one that brought it up about doing the book together. And I was like, I'm not a writer. And then when we did the book, he goes, I've got the title because everybody says you, you went ugly. And I was like, I, I don't think I went ugly, <laughs> but I went with it. But fast forward yesterday, I'm at this tournament. I had a coach come up to me and he goes, I've been a college coach for 25 years. He goes, it's an honor to meet you. He goes, he was telling me 15 years ago, I had this team. I made it required reading. I would sit all the guys on the fence and I would read them excerpts from your book to, for the day to get ready for practice. I was like, sorry, coach, that you had to do that. I mean, it's like, I've had so many, you know, coaches tell me that, or I even had a couple players, a woman that I run had a really good Russian player, a female. She saw me in the hall when I was working for ESPN and she was like, startled. Are you going to be here? I was like, yeah, I'm not going anywhere. She came sprinting back. She had an old Russian copy of winning ugly and the entire book was yellowed and written like it was in cliff notes. And she wanted to ask me a million questions. And I, I think to this day, Steve, I, I'm amazed that it's still so relevant. You know, I, I enjoyed doing it. I've enjoyed doing some, you know, add on chapters. And, and listen, I still get a kick out of it if it helps players 
you know, at any level, you, you know, it's, that's more than I ever could have dreamed about. But to your question, you know, I never thought about ugly. I just thought about win the last point, find a way to win. And that's kind of as a coach, as a player, or I'm helping anybody now. That's, that's always I think about is how you can make your game be a little bit better. That's spot on. So, so good, Brad. Um, before we go, I, I, I have to ask um, about Novak's run this year. And it was an incredible run. Steve and I have talked about it so many times. Um, I guess my question to you is that Sunday in New York, um, it was pretty evident early on in that match that this was not um, Novak's best day. And I, I say that kind of nicely. Um, what did you see specifically um, did you think the pressure at that moment finally all got to him? Um, was that moment like smack dab in the face? Like, oh, my God, I'm here. Um, was a lot of it Daniil Medvedev? Because Daniil, I mean, he's a heck of a player. He played great. Was there something early on that said, uh-oh, Novak's in trouble today? You know what? I woke up that morning, the day of the final, like super excited. Um, because, first of all, as a kid, you didn't even know what the Grand Slam really meant because of, it wasn't like you could go to Google, you could go to YouTube. And I remember, like Steve could probably appreciate this, I remember going to the uh, Davy Tennis Stadium when I was a little kid. And there would be all these good players there. There was a picture of Don Budge up on the wall, who was the first, like, you know, Grand Slam champion. And all the players used to say, how many indirects? would it take you to have a win over labor? I could do it in six. I could do it in seven. I could do it in five. That was it. Um, so I never thought that potentially there would be this chance to see it. If we didn't see it from, you know, McEnroe, Bohr, we didn't see it from, from Pete. We didn't see it from Andre. We didn't see it from the big, you know, from Rafa or Fed. But Seeing what Joker did in 15-16 when he got all four, you, you kind of, okay, you, you know what? Maybe there is a possibility, but I didn't really think about it. And so that morning of the U.S. Open final, I go back to the Aussie Open when Joker was killing Taylor Fritz. Two sets to none. He slips on the Melbourne side. And the next thing for a set and a half, he can't move. He, he you know, is he going to retire? Then it, early in the, the, to start the fifth set, they got to let the crowd out. <laughs> and somehow Joker gets through that match and then ends up winning the tournament, playing a brilliant match against Medvedev in the final a couple of times in the French Open. He's down two sets to none, you know? So getting to the final of the U.S. Open, a word that I'll use that I couldn't believe that I was thinking that I was having to see every match at the U.S. Open from Djokovic was he was resilient. He kept losing a set. He had to play a brutal, uh, you know, physical, intense match with Berrettini. It was a physical match against Brooksby. It was an unbelievably intense physical match against Vera. And I, I 
I was just thinking to myself that morning, you know, how will Djokovic be physically? You know, uh, and Medvedev has had to use no gears. You know, he hasn't had to go to a fifth gear all tournament. He's been rolling like Djokovic normally does. But if you ask me the question, if the three of us were there, how do you think Djokovic will be uh, on Sunday? You know what I would have told you? If there's a seventh gear that he's never had to go to in 2021, he's easily got it. So I just expected that he would be able to get there. First set, full credit to Medvedev. Full credit. He didn't drop a point on his first serve. 16 out of 16. But I still felt like, okay, Chris Fowler always talks about trends. There was the trend. The guy keeps losing the first set every single match. No problem. So early in the second set, I felt like that's where Djokovic was going to make his move. And a couple of weird things happened. One, there was a break point in that first game of the second set. Or, or it was one, two, you know, that whenever the first break point came, I think it, inexplicably, the PA announcer, for some reason, I don't know if he didn't hit the mute button, but he sent the music out and it was on a second serve. It went out loud. So they had to play two. And Novak was very frustrated. Medvedev saved the break point, held serve. And then the next game is where the match, uh, uh, two games later, massively turned. Love 40. And then he had a, a pretty good look at a short backhand to break. Doesn't break. And I remember thinking, uh-oh, that next game after you don't break from Love 40, I felt like was trouble. And then instantly Novak got broken. And then that's where the match, like in that little seven-minute period, you know, a little bit like what happened on that Love 40 game at three all. Uh, Andre Pete, 99 Wimbledon. Pete stretched the lead. That's exactly where Medvedev stretched the lead and squeezed the match. But I, I felt like early in the second head, um, Joker converted on either one of those opportunities. On the first game there, the 30-40, where the PA announcer screwed up, and the Love 40. And so he didn't make either one of those. I think that Medvedev exhaled and then took his game to another level. And that's partly, listen, full credit to Medvedev. And Novak maybe physically wasn't where he needed to be that day, but you still felt like he was going to win that match. Uh, you know, I never thought he was going to lose that match until he was in big trouble at two sets and a break in the third set. That's well, uh, well described. Hey, thank you. Uh, th th this was a lot of fun. We appreciate no, it. Listen, uh, you guys take me back to memory lane. I can't even believe you didn't even ask me about Andre Pete. My, I mean, my matches against Pete, you know, and <laughs> I, I can think about, you, you know, I still, you know, can remember some of those. I, you know, and then unfortunately, though, when I, I do start talking about like Andre Pete matches a little bit, even to this day, fellas, especially you, Steve, because you said you see them. I have to go take a walk after some of these matches, especially <laughs> just rethinking about the 2001 U.S. Open or, or the 95 U.S. Open. That's just 
the old coach and me that like man, Brad, you're doing this to yourself. I, I could have we Steve and I could have talked about these matches for hours. David, we, we purposely didn't want to emphasize a lot of these, you know. <laughs> David, I have to say to Brad's credit, when I interviewed him for the Pete book, he really did a very good job of ste stepping better job than you did today. But you did an incredible job of, of sort of detaching yourself a bit. And he gave me some fantastic quotes for that book where he was able to look at it from Pete's side of the net as well as Andre's and, and really gave him his due. And I, I admire that because I, I understand why it lingers with you, Brad, because you have so much passion for it and you care so much and you, you put so much into it. So uh, we, we, we certainly understand your point of view on that. I'll tell you one thing about Pete. Um, He's maybe the greatest tennis player I've ever seen it managing himself in matches that like, that like he could win a close match, a bunch of them and, and not be worried about it. And then somehow be able to elevate himself at the business end of a tournament, or he could play four of the worst return games ever before all. And then all of a sudden string together one game. He had great short-term memory loss. Or if all of a sudden he wasn't feeling physically right, he could manage himself to just manage him serve his serve and then be able to take it up in a moment, which is, a, is an incredible skill set to be able to manage yourself and manage your opponent. And I probably look back on that with, you know, with the most, amazement as a player and coach that he was able to be able to do that you know that's the way I saw it maybe he yeah. didn't see it that way but I think that's probably the most amazing thing that I would see for him is that he didn't seem like he was anywhere near 100% physically but could strike when he needed to and that's just a great quality to be able to do that to that's back so to many your times. point Brad. Your earlier point about Andre and being 95% mentally, don't you think that Pete was really underrated mentally, uh, how he was able to compete in those big matches and get the most out of himself on days when he was physically struggling, especially? Uh, a thousand percent. Remember, like, a match against Karetcha? Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and, and I felt like I'd seen Pete quite a few times in really hot conditions struggle and usually when you struggle you crash but he had this great ability it's almost like a pitcher on a pitch count knowing that like okay i i'm gonna save some pitches here because i, I want them to be important here and it's an incredible underrated skill set and the reason why he was so great is that rare ability to understand your strengths and understand how to manage yourself. And that's that's a great quality in his game that he was able to get the most out of. And from a coach, it's probably the most frustrating thing to, to coach against him and play against him being able to do that. Did that so many times in his career and huge, huge matches so many times. Brad, um, I want to thank you for your time. I'll give you uh, probably the most important part of this uh this session, I'll give you 20 seconds. Uh, talk to me about uh, status on, on the Raiders and the Warriors. Raiders, Gruden's gone. I'll give you 20, 20 seconds. Give me your best on the Raiders and the Warriors, and we'll let you go. <laughs> well, thank goodness Gruden was gone because I was not a Gruden fan, 
even before what happened. So now we know what happened, good riddance. So hopefully our Raiders are gonna be a lot better now. Um, and the Dubs, I'm incredibly hopeful that we are gonna be back in the mix as you know, the top four teams in the NBA. And Steph Curry probably gives me as much pleasure watching him as, you know, like watching a, a Fed or a Rafa or, or me coaching Andre. He's actually like, when I watch Steph Curry, I can tell you he's everything right with sports. He plays with such great passion, energy, enthusiasm. Uh, he competes, but he's not a nasty person. He, he's just a beautiful person to root for. And like I said, it's a little bit like a Rafa or Fed or me for Andre. I think he's that generational player that you want to root for because he's everything right in sports. We'll end it there. Uh, Brad, thanks again. This was, this, this was awesome. Thank you my, so much. My pleasure, man. I could talk about these kind of players till next Thursday, but just <laughs> now I'm going to have to just take a walk remembering memory lane about Pete because as a coach, that guy still like, I have no hair, gray hair. That guy, <laughs> he, that guy, he, you know, he owes me, but you know, it's what it is. <laughs> thanks, guys. Thanks, Brad. It's great. Yeah, have a great afternoon, guys.